Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Bart Dixon, welcome to Success That Last. Feels weird because we're going to try something a little bit different. You are our maiden voyage, my first podcast of Success That Lasts. And as we come up on our one-year anniversary, thought it would be fun to do a complete role reversal. A couple of different listeners threw out the idea of, hey, it's been fun listening to interview some incredible people, but would love to hear a little bit more about you. And so I was like, well, who should interview me? And I figured you were my first interview. So It was a phenomenal conversation. Still, a year later, reflect upon how meaningful it was to me. So I reached out to you and you agreed. So you're our uh, guest host, I guess, for today. Role is reversed. I'm no longer throwing the pitches. I'm in the batter's box. All right. I'm warmed up. I've been in the bullpen. As Michael Scott says, how the table turns. No, he says how the turntables. But (laughs) we're excited to give you a chance to sit in the hot seat and and get the experience that you've been giving other people. But success the last has been a been a fun run. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's, we've learned a lot over the last year and, and hopefully the, the community is, has appreciated the content, the ideas that we've discovered together. And who knows, 2021, we'll see where, where it goes. Good. Well, we're going to revisit that. We're going to talk and ask you about the podcast, its origin, its aims, and whether you feel like the aims are being hit or close. Before I do that, I got to ask you, were you raised by accountants? Because you work at an accounting firm. So were you raised by accountants? Raised by accountants? No, no. I am the oldest of four children. I grew up in Sacramento, son of a West Point Army graduate. So in kindergarten, I, I knew that proper prior planning prevented poor performance. <laughs> Most of my peers did not. I think it was around second grade that I realized that my, that my buddies didn't have Saturday morning room inspections. I came home pretty disappointed. I'm like, hey, we're the weirdos here. No one else does this, you know? But up until that moment, I figured everyone did it. And then uh, I had the opportunity to go to the University of Oregon. Actually got the opportunity to play football there. Left as an All-American, all-time leading scorer there from the football perspective, but also graduated in three years and had an opportunity to earn an MBA or my concentration was accounting and finance. And so prior to joining DeLap, I tried a couple of different industries, even a, a short vignette in, in entrepreneurship, learned a lot. So if, if learning was success, very successful. If staying in business was success, not so much. But joined the, the firm about 11 years ago, 10 years ago, and it's been an exceptional ride. You know, the common denominator in my career is financial literacy and business owners. That is a good primer on your background. Thank you. I, I remember that you did, your undergraduate studies were in place kicking. I, I did recall that from your earlier days. Now, has anybody knocked you off as the, as the all-time leading scorer? Have you ever heard of a guy named LaMichael James? Yeah, I've heard of yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah, When you can put up six at a time, that you, you, and he was doing it multiple times a game, 
he broke my record in three years. So he would have annihilated it had he stuck around his senior year. But yeah, it was a, it was a fun way to contribute to to a team, you know, with a really niche skill set. You know, I jokingly say it was the only safe spot on the football field when you're a five ten ginger. <laughs> well, we're glad you made it through safely because that's that's a tough sport. <laughs> yeah, I kept the head on the swivel. It was, now, was pretty pretty committed to not being somebody else's highlight reel. That's good. That's we love it when the kicker tries to tackle the, the guy off kickoff, though. That's that's uh, that's fun. <laughs> it's everyone's favorite, except for the kicker and his mom. Yeah. So, do you have any little kickers at home? Do you have anybody who you're training to use their legs? Married for about 17 years, beautiful wife Esther, and then I've got three kids: a daughter who's 13, a daughter who's 11, and a son who's eight. Okay. Now I know a little bit about your family, but. Your son has a unique story. Would you, would you mind sharing a little bit about your son? Yeah, yeah. My, my wife will say that there's a couple of different ways kids can join your family. You can have a natural delivery, you can have a C-section, or you can have an adoption. And so our two oldest daughters joined us biologically. And then, uh, then our little guy joined us. Originally, he was born in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so when my wife and I were having that conversation around, do we have two or three kids, learned about the number of orphans in the world, there's need here domestically and abroad for families. And so we had room in our home and love to give. And Congo specifically, there's about 4.5 million kids that don't have families. And so uh, we started that process and welcomed our son into our home and just a huge blessing to our family. Probably one of the most meaningful and important decisions that my, my wife and I have ever made. Profound. That's remarkable. And now you can pass on grandpa's preparation lessons to both your daughters and your son. They all know proper prior planning. Grandpa loves to test them on it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, good. So, Jared, you have this unique opportunity at the lap in, in the wealth management group. You get to do what's called wealth advisory. And I want to know how someone goes, gets to that point as a relatively young adult uh, who's tried entrepreneurship and, as you say, learned a lot. How do you wake up and say, you know, I think today I'm going to advise people who have wealth that they need to deal with. I, that's my role. I, I'm prepared for that. How does one come to that conclusion and find their way into this industry? Bart, about a year ago, you introduced me to a word that I grabbed onto. It was voluntold. You said, I got voluntold that I was going to be the chairman, I think, of the, the Heart Association. So it was quasi like that. Our CEO at the time, Alex Corrigan, called me into his office always feels a bit like getting called to the principal's office. You're like, I don't think I did anything wrong, but like, you know, hello, is everything okay? He's like, hey, I think we should get into wealth advisory. And I was like, I think that's great. Most of our peers did it about 20 years ago. Better late than never. And he's like, I think you should do it. And I was like, well, that's an interesting conclusion. What informed that? And he's like, we well, have experience. If a belly flop counts, I have great experience. I don't know if you want any of this experience. And he's like, well, you didn't have a team and you know, now you have a team and you know, you're not alone and we'll figure this out. And so, yeah, we just walked into it. I still approach the day with the heart of a student versus a teacher, still learning and growing, you know, still encountering things I didn't know I didn't know. And so it's quasi-intrapreneurship. You know, it's an opportunity to build a new business from within an 88-year-old business, leveraging the trust and the relationships that the firm has and fundamentally come alongside and be a decision support partner to add clarity and confidence to these decisions these families are wrestling with. I know that that's a great background. I, I recall in our prior discussions how you indicated that so many of the accounting clients for DeLap end up having these 
it, they acquire wealth, they have their businesses, and to do what's, what I think you indicated is project management. There's so many things from estate planning to accounting to strategy, and then to figure out what exactly it is they'd like to do with the abundance that comes their way. It's difficult. So how would you describe your role as a wealth manager? Clearly, there's financial advisory with nuts and bolts and, and commas and decimal points. And then there's a psychological side to investing and figuring things out. So can you give me a, a split? Is it a percentage of psychology and ethics or values? Or is it primarily the science of financial decision making? How would you describe it for, for the layperson who's not familiar with what you do? Yeah, appreciate the question, Bart. It's both, right? And at the end of the day, the client generally gets to choose what type of relationship and what type of conversations we have, but it's a combination of both. So certainly looking to add clarity and confidence to those decisions, but I've, I've come to view it a bit like GPS. You know, when we look at GPS, we all pull out our phones. We start with two data points. Where are we now and where are we going? And so often we're also anxious to begin executing and making financial decisions that we skip that important plus process of defining destinations. And again, not, not every dollar is going to be spent at the same place or, or at the same time. And so we really ought to cash flow when these goals are coming about. And not all goals are created equal. We have needs, wants, and wishes. And so going through kind of the, doing the front end work creating a plan that delineates needs, wants, and wishes allows us to build a plan that will inform future decisions because there will be moments of confusion or ambiguity. Change is inevitable, right? Our life in the world around us isn't linear. And so in that process of discovery, some of it's quantitative, it's numbers oriented, but then also a lot of it is, is really values oriented, so qualitative. And we all want money for different reasons. And there's no right answer to money. It's better understanding what is its purpose in your life? How do you want it to show up today, tomorrow, and when you're not here? And so as we gain clarity around those questions, some of these conversations are existential, you know, and they're deep and they're wonderful and they're meaningful. And so to be a thought partner in exploring options is a true, a true place of honor. And so once we have a plan, one of the more tactical benefits is now we have a document that informs strategic decisions because without that plan, we can't make strategic decisions. We're confined to tactical decisions based upon how do we minimize taxes in this particular year versus defining the destination of these dollars so that we can minimize the tax expense that these assets are subjected to over one's lifetime. So it's kind of this fusion of, of analysts and psychologists, and it's it's wonderful. Well, share with me, without getting into too much personal information, share with the listeners what success story or anecdote where you feel like in the planning process, you were able to help clients figure out how to go from what they aren't certain about to feeling real peace about their planning and what happens after they're gone. So I'd say one, one success story would be sitting down with a husband and wife, and they were discussing kind of what the next next season of life would look like. And one one partner began to describe what I've come to know as the Akagi. Akagi is a, a Japanese phrase. I encourage the listeners to look it up. I-K-I-G-A-I. And so envision a Venn diagram. So Venn diagram, you've got four overlapping circles. 
right? So one circle is called what you love to do, right? And it intersects with what the world needs, what you can get paid for, and what you're good at. And the intersection of these four overlapping circles is what the Japanese culture has come to define as the Akagi. It's your sweet spot. And so this family came and they wanted to know whether they had the financial resources where one spouse could pursue their Ikagi, right? Professionally, I want to do something different, more meaningful that I feel like I've been put on this planet to do. And the other, other spouse wanted to make sure that the financial needs, wants, and wishes of the family could be supported financially, despite potentially a change in career and accommodating that difference of potential earning capacity. So we went through and we built a plan that was informed by the family's values. And we were able to demonstrate that they could make that transition. And moreover, in the process, identified that the family had philanthropic and legacy giving goals and were able to give incredibly tax leveraged assets that reduced their tax liability, increased their, their cumulative giving, and just really supported the overall goals that the family had. So when I can create clarity and confidence around these really meaningful and important decisions that are a reflection of values, reflection of long-term goals, it's really meaningful to be a thought partner in that exercise. Fantastic. It had finances were a consideration, but someone be able to reach their dreams and, and do what they're really good at or, or made to do to help others uh, was enabled. That's powerful. Now, Jared, one thing I know about you is you're a reader. You've often texted me or called me and said, hey, I just read, I read this one. Tell us about if you had a, a reading list to share or one or two that recently stand out to you. What's on your nightstand now? And what's been one of your best reads over the last few years you recommend? Bart, I am unfortunately heavily influenced by what economists will call recency bias. I seem to like the books that I've read most recently. So it really kind of depends upon my particular mood. I guess if I zoom out and give you a non-answer, it would be that years ago, I went through a, a life planning process. One of our earlier guests, Ken Weigel, who was on, was, was the gentleman that took me through that process. One of the exercises that we did was a self-replenishment exercise. What are the things that I can do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that renew me, essentially, so that I can show up for my wife, for my kids, for my business partners and my, my clients as healthy and the best version of me possible. And along with sleeping and eating right and, and exercise, there was a, a commitment to experiencing new content because new ideas are truly energizing to me. And so over the last several years, have developed a, a content habit that's most satiated through reading. And so committed to, to reading about 40 to 50 books a year. And so always looking for the books that have been an encouragement to other people. And most recently, as I've tried to be a better thought partner to, to clients exploring the meaning and purpose of money and life and career, most recently read a, read a book on the topic called the, the Second Mountain. It's a word picture that the author references to talk about that false peak that we've all experienced on a hike where you feel like you're almost at the top and you get to the top and you realize it's a false summit. South sister, South sister. Is that, is that that one? Oh, it's terrible. Terrible false summit. <laughs> so I think a lot of people have had that moment in their career. You know, if you're super goal oriented and you just kind of forget to enjoy the process, you get to the destination and you realize the destination, the goal achievement in and of itself is meaningless. It's talking about essentially that 
you know, there's books, all, all kinds of books written upon it, but the second mountain is the one that I read most recently on the topic and have spent some time kind of reflecting upon how does that speak into my life and does it impact any of the decisions that I'm currently wrestling with? Love it. Now, I think that maybe you don't read a lot of fiction. Is that right? That is a true story. My wife reads it abundantly and I know that it serves a purpose, but I'm like, why don't you read something that makes you better? She's like, this does make me better. It makes me happier. <laughs> you were on vacation, I forget, some months ago. And I get a text from you like, hey, man, you're going to love this book. And it was kind of a heavy history book. It was like a governmental, you know, the founding of democracy type. And it was pretty historically rich, but, but heavy. I texted you back like, hey, I thought you were on vacation. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I am. And that's what you're reading. And so I, I think that as much as you're a fun guy and one of those football guys, you're kind of a heady guy. And I think that one of the things that people appreciate about you is your willingness and ability to make data and knowledge and history come alive and still be fun and engaging. I appreciate that. Yeah. No, I figure I'm going to be on the plane for a bunch of hours and, you know, I wake up earlier before my family. So, uh, yeah, a lot of the time I just kind of, I use books to scratch an itch. All of a sudden I encounter something and I'm like, that is an interesting thing. Like more recently, there's been no shortage of political and social drama, right? And I, you know, you hear a lot of reference to the constitution, but I was like, you know, it's been a long time since I spent a lot of time. And so I started reading and studying kind of the, our founding story as a country and then encountered, you know, who are the people, the thought leaders that informed the convictions of, of the founding fathers and realized that they were huge readers of the Romans and Greeks. And so, I, yeah, that book that I I'd referenced was First Principles. So it's what the American founders learned from the Greeks and Romans. And I was like, most people, I would be embarrassed to tell that I read that book, but Bart Dixon might, that might be his jam. Because <laughs> I'm so heady. That's, that's right. All right. Now, you mentioned on a little bit about our, our country right now and the dialogue or the lack of dialogue that's happening. And something that continues to surface that has fascinated me and others is the treatment of those who, this is your line of work, those who have wealth. And there's a great discussion about the wealth gap in our country. And I'd like you to, to share with us what you've learned about those who acquire wealth comparatively, right? Oftentimes they're not treated very kindly in the media. We think of Elon Musk, or we think of Bezos, or we think of Buffett, or we think of uh, our former president, right? These are people who have acquired a great deal of notoriety based on wealth. Gates, and you can, you can throw much more in there. But you don't deal with people who are notorious or famous, but you deal with different types of people who, through industry and time and effort and ingenuity, acquire wealth. So what have you learned about people? Are there any characteristics that they share who acquire wealth? besides through inheritance? I'll start with kind of empirical data. I'm working on my certified exit planning advisor designation, a SEPA designation with uh, my business partner, Dave DeLapp. And so part of that is looking at how to exit businesses well to align wealth and values. And one of the things that they pointed out is that business owners are 10 times more philanthropic than the average, average American. I thought that was an interesting empirical point. The other point that they made was that 92% of business owners give, give to charity when they sell their business. That's certainly been true of what I've observed. Again, there's kind of almost like first generation wealth, second generation wealth, third generation wealth, and 
lot of the common denominators around first-generation wealth is a commitment to work ethic, really surprising, delighting the client, focus on, on excellence. Money was a byproduct of their passions. It wasn't the, their passion, right? It was a byproduct. And sometimes if you're not intentional about transferring those values that created the wealth and you just transfer the value of the wealth, it can be squandered. And that obviously plays out in the statistics as well. But I guess back to your point, I don't know if it's because of our passion personally as advisors for philanthropy that we attract clients that are, are passionate about philanthropy, but I feel like the vast majority of the clients that we work with find great meaning, joy, and purpose in sharing their, their wealth during, during their lifetime and then when they're no longer here. And so that aligns with their values. And then obviously, from a tax perspective, there's advantages to being generous as well. And fundamentally, I've never met an unhappy, generous person. And so it's a really neat thing to create strategies that allow them to experience the rewards emotionally, as well as financially. I was writing down that quote. I've never met an unhappy, generous person. Have you? No. Would you be willing to tweet that or put that out on social media today and remind people that those who are generous are not unhappy? They're often happy. And I think that we all have so much difference to give. I have a mother who is so gifted with expressing and giving love. She does, also does it through baked goods and through what she produces in her kitchen and her garden. And she can make you smile by what she puts on your plate. But I think about so many people who have different skills and, and talents and those who share them often have joy. And as a, you know, empirically as a percentage of the population, small group of people have wealth. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing, complicated problem that I continue to wrestle with. I think capitalism is exceptional, right? Like it, it's really cool to see what, what global capitalism has done. It informs our investment thesis. It's created the wealth that, that our clients enjoy. The inequality thing is, is an interesting question to explore and look at. But fundamentally, it's interesting if you look at, again, the empirical data, not relative wealth, but absolute wealth. We've actually never been wealthier as a country. And sometimes to reframe things, I think it's always context. I personally have uh, have observed that my natural orientation is to observe and inventory the things I don't have versus all the things that I do have. So most people are unaware that the global average income around the world is $9,700. So I guess, again, there's plenty of opportunities to create improvement and help, support, need. You know, our family... We're an Oregon foster family. Uh, we think we've had about 19 kids come through the home over the last couple of years. It's tragic, the instability that Oregon children are exposed to. So there's plenty of opportunities. So I think wealth is an interesting thing. And obviously, inequality is one metric, but absolute wealth is another. And, you know, I don't think one, I'm not particularly partisan. I don't think one party has all the right ideas. It, I'd love to see a little bit more collaboration because there's probably some merit to both perspectives. It's beautifully said. I look at the dialogue, or as I indicated earlier, what I consider a lack of dialogue in the country and how much we'd benefit from learning from people who have, especially first-generation folks who have who've started a business and who've had some measure of success and to be able to share those things and not feel vilified would be important. And I don't think that there's an active approach in a given community to, to to be negative towards successful folks. But sometimes in the macro media, you, you see this uh, indication where 
people should be pulled down. And I've never met people who pull others down who are happy, to use the contradiction to your earlier statement. Generous people are happy, and those who focus on what we don't have or spend time being jealous generally aren't. What's awesome is, uh, again, I, over the last year, again, a student, not a teacher on the topic, but we've interviewed neuroscientists on this show who talked about the reticular activation system in terms of you can begin to wire your brain to see things that you should see. And if we wire our, our brains to observe all the things that we don't have or wire our brains to observe all the times that we're wronged, that we're a victim, you begin to inventory it and you can start to see it. And so this concept of some people have called it a general or a, a gratitude journal, a daily habit of observing what's going well and, and inventorying the blessings in your life. It can actually hardwire your brain to begin to see them. And I do think that gratitude is the on-ramp to joy, right? That before you can experience true joy, you have to be grateful. And that's often re- requires some level of reframing or intentionality. Awesome. Well, our countries continue to talk about sensitive topics like equity. You truly have, by definition, an African-American young man in your home. And he's still a boy. Yeah, yeah. He's not yet a man. How do you feel about his opportunities going forward? And what, what essential lessons do you want to give him or are you giving him to prepare him for the world that you see? Student, not a teacher here. So continually learning. Hey, he has a complicated identity, right? There's a lot of different intersections of, of who he is. And, and a lot of those I relate to and some of them I don't. And so, you know, as a father, the emotions that I have for him are identical to, to all my other kids, which is kind of an interesting thing because it shows me the meaninglessness of, of race, that it's at times just melanin in the skin. And yet my own child looks different than I do. And so I experience that with a level of humility and sensitivity that what don't I know, I don't know. So I'm really focused probably most around what his eternal identity is, what's his primary identity, you know, and then followed by the kind of the proper prior planning prevents poor performance. You know, hey, there's a lot of things in this world that are outside of your control. There's things that you do control and that intersection of things that matter and things that you can control. That's really where you should spend your time, energy and effort. And so that's what I talk to my clients a lot about. And that's what I'm talking to my kids about in terms of, hey, here are our family's first principles. Here's your eternal, your eternal identity. And and just being a, a source of support and accountability as we as we raise them. And I guess time will tell whether I did it right. Hopefully he's not in counseling, but who knows? Well, Jared, I think all of us parents are students, not teachers. I think we're all trying to figure it out. A lot of books have been written on it, but very few are the people who would call themselves experts on parenting because the outcomes are so varied. But I tip my hat to you, my friend, for your active, engaged parenting. I know you and Esther work really hard at it. So thank you for that. Now, this is a podcast that's been running oh, oh so long now, this year. It's called Success the Last. Would you provide us a little bit of a, a review, a refresher on how did you come to the name and what was its aim? And I'll pause, comma, for the third part of the question, which is how do you approximate how close to that aim where you're, you're meeting it or your listeners are feeling it? So how did you come up with the name? What was its aim? Let's start there. So I once heard a quote. Don't fear failure, fear success that doesn't matter. And so when I take a Gallup profile, my number one strength theme is competition, which is great until it's not. And so I experience life as a competition. And again, when that's appropriate, it's an incredible strength. And when it's inappropriate, it's a tremendous distraction and weakness. And so I'm motivated sometimes by 
not losing or making sure my competition loses, kind of, again, dysfunctionally competitive. I guess that quote was an interesting one, right? Like if I, if I was professionally successful and wildly affluent, but my kids didn't know me, like me, trust me, or love me, is that success? No, not for me, right? And, or if I made, made all this money and I spent it on things that were somewhat you know, meaningless or irrelevant, didn't prepare my kids for it or didn't prepare my business when I wasn't here. Or, you know, so I just started wrestling with these things. Like I think everyone wants to be successful, but a lot of the time we don't really take the time to define it. And so I, I had, a, had some experiences with meetings where people were financially affluent at, at levels that I'd never thought that I would participate in those sort of conversations. But I saw relational brokenness within the family. I saw identity crises in terms of like, if I don't have this business or if I don't have this money, what am I? Where there was confusion around self-worth equaling net, net worth. And so that created complexity around giving goals intergenerationally or towards charity. And so I just started kind of wrestling with, with this idea of like, hey, we all want to win. We all want to be successful. I wonder if there's a way to be intentional about questions so that it's a facilitated process versus prescription. Like, I don't want to tell anyone what success is, but is there a process to facilitate clarity around what that looks like in your life? And so that we can create alignment with your business, with your family, with your finances. And ultimately, that coordination should create a better outcome. You know, sometimes I feel as though our highest and best use is that role of of conductor because the difference between noise and music is is merely coordination and it's informed by a shared plan. And far too many people haven't taken the time for the sake of this object lesson, right, to write the music that they want to play to personally, professionally, financially, spiritually. And so you have these competing priorities that aren't integrated. And then you surround yourself with independent advisors that don't know each other don't work with one another. And the client ends up playing this role of coordinator across all these different specialties. And it's like, that's silly. It just is silly. It's noisy and it's missing an opportunity. So I wanted to use success that lasts to learn. So I don't sit here and lecture. I sit here and interview people that I think have interesting perspectives. So I wanted to share what I'm learning with, with our community. I wanted to share what I'm learning with with my partners and, and my peers within the firm, my teammates, and start a different type of conversation. I think what's cool about a lot of the technology that we have, like I don't need to be a radio DJ. You know, I could use this innovation to provoke a conversation that probably doesn't have mass appeal. It's not the Joe Rogan show, never will be. But if we focused on quality over quantity, could this be meaningful to a couple of people? And, and hopefully it is, maybe that's a win. And so I hope I'm a better podcast host today than I was when I first interviewed you. I was sharing with you that normally when you try to learn something, you do it kind of behind the scenes, out of public eye, trying to learn how to be a podcast host. You, you can't suck in secret. It's just out there for everyone to see. And so I'm feeling that right now today. It hurts real bad. <laughs> it's kind of awkward. You're like, I don't even, is this good? I don't know if I'm doing any good. But you know what? Like, I wrestle with imposter syndrome like we probably all do. And I'm like, hey, I'll figure this out. We'll just keep plowing ahead and kind of turn that voice down in the head and take that step in courage that 
I'll be better tomorrow. Well, I'll give you a, a piece of encouragement. No secret here. I've been a client of the lap for accounting and using your group. And one of the biggest values that Mandy and I have derived is just having someone prompt us, asking us questions to consider things that we don't spend time talking about when we're at the dinner table or when we're driving around, things that we often don't think about, but more so when we do make a decision. And let's be candid here. I'm the ambitious one who's making plans and and stirring the pot on the professional and financial side. She's often looking for some indicator or checkpoint to confirm that her husband's only half crazy and not entirely crazy. And to see someone across the table that says, that can be sound considering the Venn diagram, right? What do you love to do? What does the world need? What are you good at? What can you get paid for? And to have someone who knows us and knows me say, you know, that's, that's not a terrible idea. It actually really helps in life at home. And so that's one of the things I've appreciated about working with your group is it's not that you tell me all the brilliant ideas or hey, invest in this one. You'll be, you'll, you'll be loving it in five years from now. That's not it. It's considering what you have and what you know and what you like to do and what the world needs. Those opportunities you're measuring, they look positive. They look, they look at good opportunities. And so it's been, a, it's been a real joy to have the advisory of you and Dave and others. So we do appreciate it. There's at least a, one satisfied client out there in the area. Phenomenal. Good. That's a victory. Yeah, got to got to stack up those victories. Now, speaking of success, the last you talked a little bit about first generation people who start their businesses or people who experience success inside a corporation, and they then turn to the question of, okay, legacy. I'm I'm getting older now, and I am confident that I'm going to have enough to retire and enjoy retirement, and I want to now figure out what to do to make sure my family behind me is comfortable that I don't ruin them. Do you have a piece of advice you find yourself giving over and over to parents with adult children and how to protect those children from too much? Yeah, it's interesting. You always have to get clarity around these words that are rather nebulous, like how much is too much and what's the fear around that? Like, what are you trying to, to prevent? I, I think transparency is generally a great thing, you know, making sure that the kids are aware early of what the family has and why the family has it and how the family thinks about it. Generally speaking, as I've observed, that transparency serves as preparation for the children as they get closer to becoming more more of a leader in the business or inheriting assets. Because the money wasn't accumulated in a single experience. It was earned incrementally over time. And so there were mistakes that were made along the way. But as as the wealth creator made mistakes, they were smaller mistakes or there was less money at risk. So there was this incremental growth to their exponential wealth. And so to afford your kids a similar runway so that they can make mistakes when the stakes aren't high is important. I think having conversations about why money matters and how the family thinks about it, making sure that there's conversations around the values that helped inform and or create the wealth creation in the first place. Uh, again, the money is a byproduct of something else. It was their passion for their people, the passion for their customer, a passion to serve an industry. It was that passion and execution where the money was a byproduct. So making sure that the a secondary thing doesn't become the primary thing is important. The work ethic is often connected to first generation wealth creation. 
So how do we make sure, though we can prevent challenges for our kids, that we don't rob them of that adversity that is ultimately where a lot of the growth occurs? Because much like trees or muscles, where stress and friction creates strength, our children are anti-fragile. And so if we can expose them to the right amount of adversity, the right amount of challenges, and make sure that we don't prevent problems that we could maybe with stroke the check or make the phone call to fix it for our kids, sometimes you're, you're robbing them of the resistance that they need to grow and get stronger. Within family wealth, it can be very complicated because there's so many different stakeholders. You have family that's in the business, but not an owner. Family that's in the business that is does have ownership. You have in-laws that are in the business and in-laws that might have ownership or employees that have ownership that aren't part of the family. And you, all of a sudden you start looking at all these different stakeholders. There's several different classes of people that the owner is trying to create alignment with. And within siblings, there's often siblings that are involved in a business and siblings that are not. And so when you have 80 plus percent of your wealth tied up in an illiquid asset, sometimes equal is not fair and fair is not equal. And they're complicated issues to work through as a family. But having spent a career doing that, I feel like our organization has the capacity to create questions that hopefully clarity comes from. Jared, as you describe some of those things, I had a bunch of law school hypotheticals come roaring back to flood my mind with all the complexities that happen with property and estate planning and the like. And it's it's not all fun and games when you have a large enterprise or even have large estate. It can be very complicated and, and contentious. And I think that good advice can be hard to come by, but playing that that conductor role with all the professional advisors is, a, is an important thing. You hit on something that I'd like to, uh, as we taper down here on the hour, I'd like to look forward. I'd like to look forward to the next generation. You and I both have kids. We've talked about our kids. I've got five sons and a couple of them are adults, at least legally. We're working on the intellectually part. <laughs> but I know that parents have a hard time getting their children to sit down and listen to them and take advice. And, but they'll take advice from a coach or from somebody else. So if you were to get a hold of my kids and you were to give them some fundamentals or advice or guidance relative to financial literacy, if you had a chance to sit down with high school kids or middle school kids and help them understand some key principles that were either, maybe they're empirical, maybe they're not entirely empirical, what would you want to share with them to help them have a good experience in adulthood with their relationship with finance and money? I think, unfortunately, finance has its own language that there's maybe a uh, an intentional complexity to it. It's almost got its own language of financial ease that it can be a bit complicated. I would talk to them about delayed gratification, that delayed gratification is a muscle that will serve you well throughout the rest of your life. You know, as you go to college, you can either go to the party or study, right? You can either prepare and delay gratification or experience it in real time. And so it seems as though the social contract that we have rewards delayed gratification. It rewards a long-term view. It rewards patience and discipline. And so those would be skill sets that would benefit your finances as well as your career. And I would speak in very simple terms that maybe the most important wealth equation is, is production minus consumption equals wealth. And so if you make more than you consume, 
over a long period of time, you're on a great path. And so unfortunately, there's people that have exceptional incomes, but have not developed the delayed gratification muscle and have scaled their consumption at or above their income. And so it doesn't matter what income is because consumption exceeds income or, or it's, you know, the ratios are wrong. And so that's one of the reasons that really affluent people that haven't understood how money works, you think celebrities, think sudden wealth syndrome, people that in, you know, win, the, win the lottery, money in and of itself doesn't solve those problems. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in what Warren Buffett says, investing is simple, but not easy. You know, our instincts are always to do the wrong thing. When it's scary, we want to run and that's the wrong thing. You know, he says to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Again, that sounds easy, but back during the COVID crash, when the market's down 32%, our instinct wasn't to do, you know what I need? More stock. Watching a third of your, your stock allocation evaporate in a couple of days, because that was the fastest, steepest decline that, that we'd ever experienced. In hindsight, we know that it bounced, but in real time, we didn't. And so I think some of those principles, to keep it simple, there's value. And I think there's elegance in, in simplification. I'd probably emphasize those. Good stuff. Good stuff. You touched on it here at the end with, with that answer. And so I'll ask you to speak on it because I've heard you speak on this topic a couple of times. And I think that it informs a lot of your philosophy as you approach investment advisory, which is evidence-based investment. And describe for the listeners, what is evidence-based investing and how did you come into it? And how do you boil it down simply for us? Yeah, I think the origin story of an evidence-based approach is maybe it's synonymous, uh, closely connected to, to healthcare. You know, for years and years, hundreds of years, medicine was kind of folklore and you got trained through an apprenticeship and ideas and strategies were shared through anecdotes. I think as George Washington died, his doctor was cutting him. They were bloodletting. That was supposed to, to help you get better. And that was an anecdote. So the second that we went to a randomized trial or double-blind study, all of a sudden, we started actually extracting actionable insight. Correlation is not causation. And as we started to understand the science and, and capture empirical data, the predictability of the decisions was significantly improved. And so what was interesting is around the invention of the computer, You know, some of the universities in the early 60s started to, to have these monstrous computers that filled rooms. The University of Chicago started to accumulate uh, financial data. So average daily balances of all these different companies, opening price and closing price. And it took them years to create a data set that they could then run through these computers. And what they started to observe was for the first time, Gene, Gene Fama discovered that the markets are relatively efficient, right? And so that literature later then became a no, Nobel Prize. And so Gene Fama's research showed that all available information is reflected in stock prices and how efficiently and how fast the markets move. And then he started looking at the performance of people that seek to outperform the market. And after they charge a fee, what percentage of them actually beat the market? And what he was able to prove again was that you can't net of your fee predictably and repeatedly out choose the market, outpick the market. And so that lie has been perpetuated into perpetuity. And so an evidence-based approach says, well, before we have a strong opinion about anything, let's actually look at what the data says. And so Gene Fama his research, one of his PhD students was David Booth. And David Booth was actually helped to create the first index fund that was ever created. And then subsequently went on to go start a Dimensional, uh, which is a, a fund company out of Texas. And they looked at 
what are some of the ways that we can seek to add performance or increase the expected return without needing to predict the future, be an active stock picker? And so there's ways to look at the data to increase expected return relative to the risk budget based upon science versus predictions. So uh, that's our orientation. So we do what we can to be as efficient to optimize the portfolio. But again, I, I feel like there's a lot more value that can be experienced through planning versus predictions, but it doesn't stop our desire to want to be able to predict the future and our desire to want to know the future. And so I'm reminding our clients often that the only certainty about the future is uncertainty. So let's have a plan to ensure that we always have smart money, no matter what happens in the future, to support these various goals that we've identified together. Well, if you're a perpetual student and not much of a teacher or lecturer, you got me fooled because I can tell you've read a lot. You've got a lot of, a lot of data and a lot of books and you've shared your knowledge generously today. I want the listeners to know that Jared's high energy is contagious. You can feel it through the microphone. He's also been working through a Coke Zero the entire time we've been talking, friends. And so he's wired for sound and wired to go all the time, that competitive nature. But uh, close us out with this. You spoke earlier about what you called replenishment activities, things that bring you the crispness, the freshness, the ability to continue to give to your family and to your business partners and your clients. When you're not behind the microphone of Success at Last, when you're not in the office or now Zooming with clients advising them, what brings you replenishment? What helps you feel fresh and energized and ready to go? Obviously, I, I prioritize my family, my marriage, my kids, and and there's a selflessness to supporting them in their schedules. What's been neat in the midst of COVID, if there is neat things, I like to reframe things, big, big on reframing things so that I can see it differently. One of the benefits of COVID, and again, I say that sensitively knowing that there's a lot of tragedy too, but one of the benefits is potentially this idea of addition through subtraction. Now, all of a sudden, I have a lot less things that I can do, a lot less things that my, my children have to do. And so there's a stillness that's been a gift in this moment. And so one of my favorite things during this time of kind of this purposeful pause that's being forced upon us is I love getting in the car, listening to a book, and then getting to a river and spending some time in stillness fly fishing. And I'm reflecting upon life. I'm reflecting upon the content. I'm reflecting upon the relationships that I have. I'm, I reflect upon the challenges that my clients are struggling with and how can we create more clarity and confidence around that. And so that exercise of creating some stillness to consume content, enjoy just the beauty, kind of a nature bath, that stillness of creation. It's one of the first times in my life fly fishing where all of a sudden the small bugs coming off the water draw my attention and the world just gets really small and I feel connection to creation I hadn't ever really experienced before. And so yeah, that's become a, a passion and a source of, of renewal that I've been trying to get my kids to, to catch the bug to be determined if they get into it. Well, as you indicated, this is the first time in your life where you're able to slow down and see the bugs. And I think that our kids often need that time to be energetic and rambunctious before they slow down and see it. But you've proven once again to me that those who have a bunch of good things to say often take time to listen to read, ponder, and reflect. And I think whether we're talking about family relationships, personal health, friendship, or wealth, these are good practices. And I think that those things definitely lead to success the last. 
Jared Siegel, thank you for being with us. Congratulations on a successful year. And we look forward to hearing more from you and your guests. Thank you, Bart.